Hello and welcome to today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Friday, February the 2nd, 2024. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik, and here's our first story entitled, Bill Would Block Immigrant Benefits. It's written by Caleb McCullough of the Lee Gazette Des Moines Bureau. Over the protest of immigrants and activists who filled Iowa State Capitol committee rooms this week, Republican lawmakers advanced bills that would put stricter limitations on undocumented immigrants. The bills would make undocumented immigrants ineligible for in-state tuition and public assistance programs and creating a new penalty for transporting or harboring undocumented immigrants. Republicans said the bill would disincentivize illegal immigration into Iowa and ensure that taxpayer money does not go to people who are not in the U.S. legally. Opponents of the bill said they would punish immigrant communities and instill fear in an already vulnerable population. Hardworking Iowa taxpayers should not be footing the bill for individuals who are not in the country legally through any public assistance program or tuition benefits, Iowa Republican House Speaker Pat Grassley wrote in a newsletter. Additionally, we cannot allow our state's policies to essentially incentivize people to come to our country illegally. That would be unsustainable and unfair to those who do follow the proper process to immigrate legally. House File 2128 requires that a person provide a proof of U.S. citizenship or proof that they are lawfully present in the country to be considered for in-state tuition at Iowa's public universities and community colleges. Immigrants and activists speaking to an Iowa House subcommittee on Monday said the bill would deny education to a swath of Iowans who grew up and pay taxes in the state. According to estimates from the Migration Policy Institute, there were about 37,000 undocumented immigrants in Iowa as of 2019. The Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, known as DACA, created legal protections for some people born before 2007 who were brought into the U.S. illegally as children. Most undocumented graduating high school students today are not eligible for DACA, according to FWD. US, an immigration political advocacy organization. Ari Davis was among the many people who spoke out against the bill on Monday. She said she came to the U.S. from Mexico at three years old. She received DACA status and, paying in-state tuition, went to Des Moines Area Community College, then graduated from Iowa State University with a degree in criminal justice. She said she has since started a family, bought a home in Iowa, and became a U.S. citizen two years ago. But I can assure you that I've been an American since I was three years old, she said. I'm here to defend the pursuit of happiness for other Americans who are lacking the legal status of American, but are American in every single other way. Representatives for Iowa's public universities and community colleges said the bill would be an administrative challenge for colleges and universities who would need to inquire about citizenship of every prospective student. State universities' current tuition guidelines allow anyone who graduated from an Iowa high school to claim residency in the state for tuition purposes. The bill was passed out of the subcommittee by Republican Representative Schuyler Wheeler of Hull and Taylor Collins of Minneapolis. Representative Sammy Sheets, a Democrat from Cedar Rapids, voted against the bill, calling it a bill that's in search of a problem. Collins said it was, in part, an answer to the rising rates of unlawful border crossings under President Joe Biden. If you come to this country illegally, we are not going to subsidize your college, 
Education, Collins said. The problem is we've had 7 million people come into this country illegally under President Joe Biden, and at some point we're going to have to address that issue. Another bill would require non-citizens to be legal residents in order to obtain public assistance programs like the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program and Medicaid. The bill requires non-citizens to submit documentation about their status and requires the state to use a federal tool to determine citizenship status. Federal law already prohibits an undocumented immigrant from receiving public assistance benefits. The bill, House File 2112, would also create a penalty for smuggling of persons. The bill would make transporting or harboring an undocumented person with the intent to conceal them from law enforcement a crime under state law. Representative Steve Holt, a Republican from Denison who chaired the subcommittee on the bill, said Iowa State Patrol officers have had experiences of being unable to detain a person who was transporting undocumented immigrants through the state, which he hopes the bill can address. The bill is essential for law enforcement to be able to protect both citizens and non-citizens, Holt said. There is nothing normal, excuse me, moral about what is happening on our border. Human trafficking, sex trafficking, deadly drugs entering our nation at an alarming rate. The bill would make the crime punishable by a Class C felony or a Class B felony if the smuggled person carries a risk of bodily injury or death, is under age 18, or if the offender carries a firearm. It would be a Class A felony if the smuggled individual became a victim of sexual abuse, suffered serious injury, or died because of the action. But opponents of the bill told Holt and other subcommittee members on Tuesday that the smuggling provisions of the bill would instill fear into immigrant communities and create a chilling effect for people who work with undocumented immigrants. No one at the subcommittee's meeting spoke in favor of the bill. Multiple people said they were worried the bill would criminalize driving an undocumented family member to the doctor or a coach transporting undocumented children to and from sporting events. Holt said the bill is not intended to outlaw those activities. Paulina Osegueda, who works with a League of United Latin American Citizens youth program in Ottumwa, said the bill would add to the struggles facing immigrant families in Iowa. I deal with immigrant children and immigrant parents that are in this activity that we have as a club, Osegueda said. This would just cause more issues. I don't want to profile and make sure what their status is. It just doesn't seem correct. It just seems very discriminatory because you're looking at the color of their skin. Opponents said the rules around public assistance are unnecessary and redundant as undocumented immigrants are already barred from receiving SNAP and Medicaid benefits under federal law. The bill would create more paperwork and potentially disincentivize immigrants who are eligible for assistance from applying. This bill would prolong those wait times and harm vulnerable populations. It would also create confusion and have a chilling effect, especially for mixed-status families, families where some members are U.S. citizens and others aren't, said Gabriel Saldana, a community organizer with Iowa Migrant Movement for Justice. Our next article from the front page of the Nonpareil is entitled, Bill to Require Foreign Farm Owner Reporting. It's written by Aaron Murphy of the Lee Gazette Des Moines Bureau. Foreign owners of Iowa farmland would be required to report more detailed information, although most of that information would not be made public under legislation that got its first legislative approval Tuesday at the Iowa Capitol. 
The legislation was proposed by Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds, who raised the topic during her January 9th Condition of the State Address. The governor's proposal would require more robust reporting of information about foreign farmland owners, require the Iowa Secretary of State's office to increase its tracking of such ownership, and grant the Iowa Attorney General's office broader subpoena authority to investigate potential violations of state law about foreign farmland ownership. Reynolds and state lawmakers in support of the proposal say Iowa already has strong laws regarding foreign land ownership and her bill would make them even stronger. I think this is a great piece of legislation that's going to advance our understanding of who our neighbors are, Senator Dan Zumbach, a Republican from Ryan and a farmer, said during the subcommittee hearing. And I think all of us need to know who they are. Currently, that might be a question. But other than the people of Iowa, Iowa's land is the most precious resource we have, and this bill will clarify who landowners are. Still, the proposal would shield most of the newly reported information from public view. The Iowa Secretary of State would be required to file an annual report on foreign farmland ownership in Iowa, which would be made available to state lawmakers but not the public. Zumbach said he is not concerned with those provisions. I think the information, when this is all said and done, that the public will be able to have some redacted versions of that of what's going on, Zumbach told reporters. But I think at this point, we're good where we're at. I think at this point, I like the legislation. I like where the legislation is. The proposed legislation was approved by Zumbach, his fellow Senator Don Driscoll, a Republican from Williamsburg, and Democratic Senator Todd Taylor of Cedar Rapids. Iowa's current primary foreign land ownership law says that a non-resident alien, foreign business, or foreign governor, government shall not purchase or otherwise acquire agricultural land in this state. However, foreign people or firms who owned Iowa farmland before January 1, 1980 were allowed to keep it but prohibited from buying more. There are some exceptions, including farmland used for testing, developing, or producing seeds or plants for sale or resale to farmers, and land used for research or experimentation, not profits. Farm group advocates spoke in favor of the governor's bill during Tuesday's hearing. There are no lobbying organizations registered in opposition to the bill. Legislative liaisons for the governor's and attorney general's office also spoke at the hearing. We think it's a positive change for Iowa. We want to make sure that land stays in the hands of Iowans, said Dan Breitbarth with the Iowa Attorney General's Office. With that first approval, the bill, Senate Study Bill 3113, becomes eligible for consideration by the full Iowa Senate Agriculture Committee. That brings us to an article entitled Swift Kelsey, the Focus of Conspiracy Theories. This is written by Melissa Golden of the Associated Press. The budding love story featuring music superstar Taylor Swift and Kansas City Chiefs tight end Travis Kelsey took an unexpected turn into the world of political conspiracy theories this week after the team advanced to the Super Bowl. Myriad baseless rumors emerged on social media, everything from claims that Swift has played a part in Pentagon psychological operations to the idea that she and her two-time Super Bowl champion boyfriend are key assets in a secret plot to help President Joe Biden get reelected in 2024. Another variant, that the Chiefs' success was rigged as part of the plan for the game on February 11th in Las Vegas. 
Political and media figures on the right, including former Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy, political activist Laura Loomer, and One America News Network host Allison Steinberg, amplified the allegations. The claims are ludicrous and may well reflect the fear on the right that someone as famous as Swift, whose Landmark Eras tour is the first tour to cross the billion-dollar mark, could indeed influence the presidential race should she urge her legion of fans in one direction. Pop culture and politics have long been entwined. The entertainment industry has been a deep well of political contributions. Candidates often try to draft on the celebrity of stars to add to their own allure. The potency of the impact is less clear. In Swift's case, there is some proof that she can, at minimum, generate more voter registration. In September, Swift posted a short message on her Instagram account encouraging her 272 million followers to register to vote. The post led to more than 35,000 registration on the nonpartisan nonprofit Vote.org. Swift's massive fan base gives her a powerful voice. An SSRS poll conducted in October 2023 found that about 6 in 10 U.S. adults called themselves at least casual fans of the singer, with 8% saying they're big fans. The poll also found that 8 in 10 U.S. adults said they heard of her relationship with Kelsey, and the majority of those familiar with it considered it a real relationship rather than a publicity stunt. Pop culture people identify with this stuff. They pay attention to it. And that's what moves politics now. It's attention and identity. Joel Penny, an associate professor at Montclair State University, whose research includes the intersection of politics and pop culture, said, Indeed, Donald Trump's improbable march to the presidency in 2016 was propelled in part from the celebrity he gained from his reality television show, the claims about Swift are of such an extreme nature that they will test the limits of how potent a conspiracy theory can be. Penny sees the recent deluge of posts aimed at Swift as an attempt to preemptively blunt her impact by discrediting her. Penny said Swift's influence could prove a difficult force to contend with, especially if she publicly supports Biden as she did in the 2020 race. The attacks on Swift could also galvanize young voters who want to rally around her. Young people are fighting their political battles through a language drawn from pop culture, said Henry Jenkins, a professor at the University of Southern California who also studies politics and pop culture. That's what connects them. That's what they're engaged with. Both Swift and Kelsey have made public statements about politics and other issues that put them at odds with the far right. Swift broke her long-standing refusal to discuss her political views in 2018 when she announced in an Instagram post that she would vote for Tennessee's Democratic Senate candidate Phil Bredesen and Democratic House incumbent Representative Jim Cooper. She also slammed then-U.S. Representative Marsha Blackburn, the Republican candidate citing Blackbird's opposition to certain LGBTQ plus rights and her vote against the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act in 2013. Blackburn won election in the, to the Senate. In 2020, Swift endorsed Biden and Fre Vice President Kamala Harris in an interview with V Magazine, noting that under their leadership, I believe America has a chance to start the healing process it so desperately needs. 
Chelsea faced criticism in September for appearing in an ad promoting the double dose of the flu and COVID-19 vaccines as recommended by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The ad was part of a partnership with Pfizer, the pharmaceutical company that developed a vaccine in response to the pandemic and has since become a common target for anti-vaccine activists and conspiracy theorists. From the Nation and World page, U.S. hints at big response. Counter-strikes against Houthi rebels so far haven't deterred them. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said Thursday it's time to further disable Iran-backed militias that struck at U.S. forces and ships in the Middle East and the U.S. is preparing to take significant action in response to the deaths of three U.S. service members in Jordan. For days, the U.S. hinted strikes are imminent. While the threat of retaliation for Sunday's deaths drove some militant groups to say they were stopping hostilities, as late as Thursday, Yemen's Houthi rebels attacked vessels and fired a ballistic missile at a libertarian-flagged container ship in the Red Sea. At this point, it's time to take away even more capability than we've taken in the past, Austin said Thursday. Previous U.S. strikes have not deterred the attacks. Since the war between Israel and Hamas militants broke out in October, Iranian-backed militia militant groups struck U.S. bases in Iraq and Syria at least 166 times with rockets, missiles, and one-way attack drones, drawing about a half-dozen U.S. counterstrikes on militant facilities in both countries. The U.S. military also carried out airstrikes targeting the Iran-backed Houthi rebels in Yemen. The U.S. attributes the attack on Tower 22 in Jordan to the Islamic resistance in Iraq, an umbrella group of Iran-backed militias that includes the militant group Khatib Hezbollah. While Iran denies involvement, Austin said Thursday that how much Iran knew or didn't know, we don't know, but it really doesn't matter because Iran sponsors these groups. Austin said the Pentagon is still looking at the forensics of the drone that struck Tower 22, a secretive base in northeastern Jordan that's been crucial to the American presence in neighboring Syria. In the Red Sea, the Houthis fired on commercial and military ships almost 40 times since November. In the latest attack Thursday, they fired a ballistic missile at the MV Koi, a Liberian-flagged container ship. U.S. Central Command said the ship's management could not immediately be breached for comment. The Houthis did not claim responsibility for the assault. Also on Thursday, Central Command said it destroyed two more Houthi-fired drones. One overhead drone, fired at 5 a.m. in Yemen, was shot down in the Gulf of Aden. A few hours later, an uncrewed surface vehicle, a drone that travels through water, was determined to be an imminent threat and was struck in self-defense in the Red Sea, Central Command said. Next is an article entitled, Farmers Get Some Concessions. They Object to Energy and Fertilizer Costs, Red Tape, Cheap Imports. The dateline is Brussels. Farmers burned bales of hay, threw eggs and firecrackers at police, and wrestled some promises of a relief from European leaders on Thursday, the culmination of weeks of protests across the continent over excessive red tape and competition from cheap imports. Eager to reassure a key part of the electorate and end disruptions in several cities, leaders at a European Union summit in Brussels showered the farmers with compliments and compassion, if few concrete proposals. 
In France, the government made significant concessions, enough that two major farmers' unions promised to suspend the chokehold their tractors placed on Paris for days. For weeks, farmers complained that it's becoming harder to make a decent living as energy and fertilizer costs surge because of Russia's war in Ukraine. More and cheaper farm imports enter the bloc, and climate change-fueled droughts, floods, or fires destroy crops. On Thursday, as thick smoke from burning bales of hay and tires hung over parts of the Belgian capital, security forces used water cannons to douse fires and keep a farmer from felling a tree on the steps of the European Parliament. But ahead of EU parliamentary elections in June, most leaders at the summit were keen to win over farmers, especially as populist and hard-right politicians latched onto their plight in recent weeks. Leaders welcomed the plan of the European Commission, the EU's executive branch, to shield farmers from cheap imports from Ukraine during wartime and allow farmers to use some land that was forced to lie fallow for environmental reasons. EU Commission Chief Ursula von der Leyen also promised Thursday to prepare plans by the end of the month to cut reams of bureaucratic rules to make sure farmers can spend more time in their fields, not in their offices. In France, Prime Minister Gabriel Attal announced a new set of measures, including hundreds of millions of euros in aid and tax breaks, and also promised not to ban pesticides in France that are allowed elsewhere in Europe. In Brussels, many leaders also said they would not approve a trade deal with South American nations that is under consideration unless any imports would meet the same regulatory standards that EU farmers face, a key demand from the sector. Now we come to an article entitled, Deaths Continue to Surge in Israel's Gaza Offensive. Biden sanctions four Israeli settlers accused of West Bank violence. More than 27,000 people have been killed and 66,000 wounded by Israel's offensive in Gaza, the Hamas-controlled territory's health ministry said Thursday. The number of deaths has grown by more than 1,100 since the International Court of Justice in The Hague last week told Israel to do its best to prevent acts of genocide against Palestinians in Gaza. South Africa's foreign minister accused Israel of ignoring that ruling by the United Nations' top court. Meanwhile, President Joe Biden issued an executive order Thursday that targets Israeli settlers in the West Bank who are accused of attacking Palestinians and Israeli peace activists in the occupied territory, imposing financial sanctions and visa bans in an initial round against four individuals. The penalties aim to block the four from using the U.S. financial system and bar American citizens from dealing with them. Also Thursday, Britain's Foreign Secretary David Cameron said his country could officially recognize a Palestinian state after a ceasefire in Gaza without waiting for the outcome of what could be a years-long talks between Israel and the Palestinians on a two-state union. And European Union seals aid package for Ukraine. Russia claims plane was brought down by U.S.-made missiles. Leaders of the 27 European Union countries sealed a deal Thursday to provide Ukraine with $54 billion in support for its war-ravaged economy after Hungary dropped weeks of threats to veto the measure. European Council President Charles Michel 
said the agreement locks in steadfast long-term predictable funding for Ukraine and shows the EU's determination to support their future, to support freedom. The aid package, about two-thirds loans and one-third grants, is not intended to help fight off Russia. Apart from supporting the economy and paying for rebuilding, it's also aimed at setting Ukraine up for future EU membership. Meanwhile, Ukraine claimed Thursday it used sea drones to sink a small Russian warship in the Black Sea as Russian investigators alleged that a Russian military transport plane that crashed last month was brought down by two U.S.-made Patriot missiles fired by Kyiv's forces. Disinformation has been part of the grinding war, which marks its second anniversary on February 24th, and it was not possible to independently verify either side's claim. Now here's today's Digest articles. First, study finds COVID-19 shots 54% effective. The latest versions of COVID-19 vaccines were 54% effective at preventing symptomatic infection in adults, according to the first U.S. study to assess how well the shots work. The shots became available last year and were designed to better protect against more recent coronavirus variants. The CDC recommends the shot for everyone six months and older, though most Americans haven't gotten them. In Thursday's study, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention looked at 9,000 people who got tested for COVID-19 at CVS and Walgreens pharmacies, checking who tested positive and whether they got a new shot. The 54% finding is similar to what's been reported in other countries and for an earlier vaccine version, said Ruth Link-Gellis of the CDC, the study's lead author. And marketer drug maker OK Opioid Settlements. An advertisement agency that helped develop marketing campaigns for OxyContin and other prescription painkillers and a drug maker announced separate agreements Thursday worth a total of $500 million to avoid going to trial on claims that they bore some responsibility for the nation's opioid crisis. Publicis Health, part of the Paris-based media conglomerate Publicis Group, agreed to pay $350 million part of which will flow to every state in the next two months, and most of which will be used to fight the overdose crisis. It's the first advertising company to reach a major settlement over the toll of opioids in the U.S. Separately, Hikma Pharmaceuticals agreed to pay $115 million in cash and provide $35 million worth of an overdose reversal drug to state, local, and Native American tribal governments. Now, under the briefly heading, first, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said Thursday he never told his staff to keep his cancer diagnosis, surgery, and hospitalization secret from the White House, but acknowledged he should have handled it differently and apologized. A second contractor said Thursday it reached a $25 million settlement over its role in the lead-contaminated water scandal that officials say caused learning disabilities in children and medical problems among adults in majority black Flint, Michigan. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said Thursday that the Senate will hold a test vote next week on legislation that would pair new U.S. border policies with war aid for Ukraine and other American allies, despite skepticism from Republicans and some Democrats. 
And a London judge Thursday threw out a lawsuit by former U.S. President Donald Trump that accused a former British spy of making shocking and scandalous claims in the 2016 so-called Steele dossier that were false and harmed his reputation. More than 200 staffers with the Chicago Tribune and six other newsrooms around the U.S. began a 24-hour strike Thursday to protest slow-walked contract negotiations and to demand fair wages. And the number of Americans filing for jobless benefits rose last week to the highest level in 11 weeks, though layoffs remain historically low. Applications for unemployment benefits climbed to 224,000 last week, an increase of 9,000 from the prior week, the Labor Department said Thursday. You're listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, please give us a call at area code 515-243-6833. Now here's a personal finance column that you might find interesting. It's called Pricey Pills. Tips to Help You Save Money on Prescription Medications. It's written by Aaron Bendig of Kiplinger's Personal Finance. It has become decreasingly increasingly difficult for Americans to afford prescription medications. A March 2023 study from YouGov found 37% of Americans have had to forego filling at least one prescription due to the cost. It also revealed 43% of women and 44% of people with an annual family income under $50,000 are most likely to not be able to afford prescription medication. With so many individuals struggling to keep up with the cost of prescription drugs, it's clearly saving money at the pharmacy is a concern for many. These tips can help ease the burden. Check out Patient Assistance Programs, or PAPs, and GoodRx. PAPs are managed by pharmaceutical companies to provide free or discounted medications to people who can't afford them. Typically, PAPs are contingent on financial need. For more information on how to enroll and to see if you qualify for a PAP, go to rxassist.org or needymeds.org. Also check out GoodRx on its website or mobile app to find the cheapest prices on prescription medications. The site compares real-time prices at different pharmacies to find the best prices and discounts. It also offers free coupons to help you pay less. Consider a 90-day supply. Opting for a three-month subscription as opposed to a one-month supply could save you considerable money on medication costs. Yes, you'll pay more out-of-pocket up front, but you'll shell out less money overall in the long run. Ask your doctor if a 90-day supply is a possibility and if it'll save you some cash. Save by going generic or biosimilar. According to the Association for Accessible Medicines, the average brand name drug copay was $56.12 in 2022. This is more than nine times higher than the average copay for generic drugs, which the AAM reported to be $6.16. The AAM also found that 93% of the time the copay for a generic prescription was under $20, compared to only 59% of the time for name brand drugs. Biosimilar drugs are also good options for savings. 
A biosimilar drug isn't an exact copy of a name brand drug the way generic drugs are. Instead, they have a structure that is highly similar to the name brand biologic. However, since biosimilar drugs still behave the same way as a name brand biologic, they're considered just as safe and effective. Choose the right pharmacy. Filling a prescription medication at a preferred pharmacy can help you save on the cost of co-pays, so check with your health insurance provider to make sure a pharmacy is in your plan's preferred network. A prescription delivery service could also help you save on prescription drugs. For example, Amazon's RX Pass gives Prime members access to the most common generic medications for a flat fee of $5 per month. Walgreens' Prescription Savings Club program costs $20 a year for an individual or $35 for a family, and it offers discounts on thousands of medications. Now an article about employment trends, layoffs hit retail and tech sectors. Here are some companies that have recently announced job cuts. This year has already proven to be a difficult one for layoffs. A handful of companies have been making job cuts in recent weeks, bringing uncertainty for workers across industries. In the world of retail and tech, some of these cuts arrive after a ramp up in hiring seen during the COVID-19 pandemic when people spent more time and money online. Now, many companies are reducing their workforces to help lower costs and bolster their bottom lines. Here's some tech and retail companies that have laid off employees of late. TikTok. TikTok said it's shedding dozens of workers in its advertising and sales unit. A spokesperson for the company confirmed that the social media platform is cutting 60 jobs. TikTok, which is owned by Beijing-based ByteDance, did not provide reasons for the layoffs. Riot Games. Video game developer Riot Games, which is behind the popular League of Legends multiplayer battle game, is trimming 11% of its staff. The company, which is owned by Chinese technology giant Tencent, said 530 jobs were being eliminated. Google. Google said it was laying off hundreds of employees working on its hardware voice assistant and engineering teams. The cut follows pledges by executives of Google and its parent company Alphabet to reduce costs. A year ago, Google said it would lay off 12,000 employees, around 6% of its workforce. Wayfair. Online furniture seller Wayfair is cutting about 1,650 jobs, or 13% of its global workforce. The restructuring is set to reduce team size across the company and reduce seniority in certain roles with the company planning to rebuild with modified leveling this year, CEO and co-founder Niraj Shah said. Macy's Macy's is laying off about 3.5% of its total headcount, which amounts to roughly 2,350 employees. The iconic department store is also closing five locations in Arlington, Virginia, San Leandro, California, Laihu, Hawaii, Simi Valley, California, and Tallahassee, Florida. Levi's. Levi Strauss and Company is slashing its global corporate workforce by 10 to 15 percent in the first half of the year as part of a two-year restructuring plan that seeks to cut costs and simplify its operations, the denim giant said. The layoffs came on the same day Levi's unveiled a proposed 10-year extension to the naming rights for Levi's Stadium, home of the San Francisco 49ers, in a $170 million deal. 
Microsoft. Microsoft is laying off some 1,900 employees in its gaming division, according to an internal company memo. The job cuts, which represent about 8% reduction of Microsoft's 22,000-person gaming workforce, arrived just over three months since the tech giant completed its $69 billion purchase of video game maker Activision Blizzard. eBay. Online retailer eBay, Inc., will cut about 1,000 jobs, or an estimated 9% of its full-time workforce, saying its number of employees and costs have exceeded how much the business is growing in a slowing economy. REI. REI is laying off 357 workers, mostly in the outdoor retailers' headquarters and distribution centers. In a letter to employees, CEO Eric Arts noted that outdoor specialty retail has experienced four quarters of decline, and that trend has been worsening. While REI was able to outperform this for much of last year, he said this trend caught up to the company in the fourth quarter and difficult conditions are expected in 2024. And Amazon, Twitch, which is owned by Amazon, is cutting more than 500 jobs in a bid to save on costs. The video streaming platform's CEO, Dan Clancy, said in an email to employees that even with cost cuts and growing efficiency, the platform is still meaningfully larger than it needs to be given the size of our business. Amazon-owned online audiobook and podcast service Audible is laying off about 5% of its workforce. In a memo sent to employees, Audible CEO Bob Kerrigan said that the company is in good shape but faces an increasingly challenging landscape. In addition, Amazon's Prime Video and MGM Studios unit is trimming hundreds of employees as it cuts back in areas that are not delivering. There's no obituaries or opinions in today's edition of the Nonpareil, so we'll turn to sports now. We'll start with men's college basketball top 25. Nebraska storms back to beat number six, Wisconsin. Nebraska came back from an 18 point second half deficit to knock off number six, Wisconsin, 80 to 72 in overtime on Thursday night, the second top 10 opponent the Cornhuskers have beaten this season. Rink Mast scored early in overtime to give the Huskers the lead for good, and when time expired, the students spilled onto the court for the second time this season. The first was January 9th when the Huskers beat then number one Purdue 88-72. C.J. Wilcher scored 16 of his 22 points in the second half. Mast finished with 20 and the Huskers improved to 6-0 at home in the Big Ten. It was Nebraska's biggest comeback since erasing a 19-point deficit against Iowa in 2013. Since the year 2000, Wisconsin, Wisconsin had been 120 wins, zero losses, when leading by 15 or more points at halftime. A.J. Storr matched his season high with 28 points to lead the Badgers. Max Klesmet and Chucky Hepburn had 13 apiece. The Cornhuskers were down as many as 19 in the first half, but were able to come back as Wisconsin, which shot 55% in the first half, dipped to 36% in the second, and got sloppy with the ball. Number 11, Arizona, defeated California 91-65. Omar Ballou scored a season-high 22 points and grabbed 13 rebounds. Kashad Johnson added 15 points, and the Wildcats routed the Bears in Tucson. The 7-foot, 260-pound below 
scored nine points and grabbed four rebounds during a 29-11 run to open the game. In NFL news, Quinn to lead commanders. Cowboys defensive coordinator fills the final coaching vacancy. The Washington Commanders have an agreement with Dallas Cowboys defensive coordinator Dan Quinn to hire him as coach, according to two people with knowledge of the decision. The people spoke to AP on condition of anonymity Thursday because the team had not yet announced the move. The Commanders were the final team to fill their vacancy. All 32 NFL teams now have a head coach as of Thursday, with seven-time Super Bowl champion Bill Belichick and former Titans coach Mike Vrabel on the outside looking in. Quinn, age 53, spent the past three seasons running the defense for the NFC East rival Cowboys after five-plus seasons coaching the Atlantic Falcons. Quinn coached the Falcons to a Super Bowl appearance in 2016 before being hired after a 0-5 start, or before being fired after an 0-5 start in 2020. He became Washington's choice after Lions offensive coordinator Ben Johnson, considered a top candidate, told teams Tuesday he was staying with Detroit and the Seahawks hired Baltimore defensive coordinator Mike McDonald. Controlling owner Josh Harris, new general manager and head of football operations Adam Peters and Quinn give the organization a much-desired new approach after four years of Ron Rivera in charge turned out to be a disappointment. Harris was committed to splitting the personnel and coaching duties this time around. Much like Peters with the ability to hire a new coach, Quinn now gets the chance to fill out his own staff in his second stint as an NFL head coach. It remains to be seen if Eric Bianami returns as offensive coordinator, though that's not expected and that position on defense is vacant after Rivera fired Jack Del Rio midway through this past season. Quinn's defense ranked fifth in the league in yards and points allowed, helping Dallas win the NFC East before losing in the first round of the playoffs. He inherits the Commanders after they went four wins, 13 losses, including two blowout losses to the Cowboys. Washington does have the second pick in the draft, more than $80 million in salary cap space, and the opportunity for Peters and Quinn to handpick the next quarterback for a franchise that has not had any consistency at the position in decades. After Johnson pulled himself out of consideration, Washington Brass had to pivot to their other candidates. McDonald going to Seattle made Quinn the front runner, and he got the job over the likes of Detroit defensive coordinator Aaron Glenn and Baltimore assistant Anthony Weaver. Falling in love, Green Bay. Jordan Love's ability to lead the NFL's youngest team to the divisional playoffs in his first year as a starter has the Green Bay Packers eager to work out a long-term extension with him. Love agreed to terms on a one-year extension that made his deal run through 2024 after the Packers traded four-time MVP quarterback Aaron Rodgers to the New York Jets last year. Love became eligible for another extension in May. Packers general manager Brian Gutkunst said that I think we'll go down that road. And some briefs from the NFL. Baltimore hired Zach Orr as its defensive coordinator after Mike McDonald left to become the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks earlier this week. The Ravens announced the 31-year-old Orr's promotion Thursday. He was Baltimore's inside linebackers, coached the past two seasons, and also played linebacker for the Ravens from 2014 to 2016. 
Former Tampa Bay Buccaneers and Houston Texans right tight end Anthony O'Claire announced his retirement. O'Claire hadn't appeared in an NFL game since 2021 when he caught five passes for 47 yards and a touchdown with the Texans. The 30-year-old finishes his career with 15 catches for 131 yards and one touchdown in 56 games. And new Atlanta Falcons coach Raheem Morris continued to fill out his staff by hiring Ike Hilliard as wide receivers coach. Hilliard returns to the NFL after spending the 2022 season as Auburn's co-offensive coordinator and wide receivers coach. Our next article is entitled, F1 Great Hamilton Leaves Mercedes to Join Ferrari in 2025. This is written by Jerome Pugmire of the Associated Press. Lewis Hamilton shocked the motorsports world Thursday when the seven-time Formula One champion said he will leave Mercedes at the end of the season to join Ferrari, which had tried to land Hamilton before he signed his latest contract extension with the Silver Arrows. Hamilton only finalized a two-year extension with Mercedes at the end of August. Mercedes said Thursday the 39-year-old British driver has activated a release clause in that new deal that will allow him to join Ferrari in 2025. I have had an amazing 11 years with this team and I'm so proud of what we have achieved together. Mercedes has been part of my life since I was 13 years old, Hamilton said in a team statement. It's a place where I have grown up, so making the decision to leave was one of the hardest decisions I have ever had to make. But the time is right for me to take this step and I'm excited to be taking on a new challenge. Hamilton moved from McLaren to Mercedes in 2013 and won six of his seven titles with the Silver Arrows. His 103 race victories are an F1 record, but his last win was in the penultimate race of the 2021 season as Mercedes has struggled to get its new car up to speed against rival Red Bull. Hamilton will finish his run at Mercedes alongside current teammate George Russell. He will be teammates at Ferrari with Charles Leclerc, who in December agreed to a long-term extension. In the NBA, Reeves fills scoring void as Lakers surprise Celtics. Austin Reeves scored a season-high 32 points and hit a career-high seven three-pointers to help a Los Angeles Lakers team missing LeBron James and Anthony Davis stun the Boston Celtics 114-105 on Thursday night. James sat out because of a left ankle injury and Davis was sidelined by an Achilles tendon issue and left hip spasms. Reeves was 7 of 10 from beyond the arc. He also was fouled on one of the misses and made all three free throws. The Lakers hit 19 of 36 three-pointers, holding off the NBA-leading Celtics to end a two-game losing streak. D'Angelo Russell added 16 points, 14 assists, and 8 rebounds for the Lakers. Jackson Hayes has 16 points and 10 rebounds. And the Knicks defeated the Pacers 109-105. Jalen Brunson scored 40 points and shook off an apparent eye injury to make the go-ahead basket with 1 minute 46 seconds remaining as host New York won its ninth straight. Hours after being voted an All-Star for the first time in his career, Brunson scored 11 in the fourth quarter to rally the Knicks in a game they trailed by 15 points. 
They had surged back to take the lead, then fell behind 199 when Brunson crashed into Andrew Nemhard in the backcourt, laying on the court and holding his face as Jalen Smith picked up the loose ball for an uncontested basket. But with his left eye appearing swollen, Brunson drove into the lane on the next possession and scored while being fouled with baskets by Dante DiVincenzo and Precious Achua following to make it 105-100. DiVincenzo scored 20 points and Deuce McBride had 16. Isaiah Hartenstein had 12 points and 19 rebounds and Achua finished with 12 points and 16 boards for the Knicks. Cavaliers 108, Grizzlies 101. Donovan Mitchell had 25 points and 7 assists as visiting Cleveland beat Memphis for its 4th straight victory and 12th in 13 games. Jaron Jackson Jr. led the Grizzlies with 25 points. Santi Aldama had 18 points and 9 rebounds and Vince Williams Jr. scored 17 points. And the Philadelphia 676ers took down the Utah Jazz 127-124. to Tyrese Maxey scored a career-high 51 points as Philadelphia held on to defeat host Utah and snap a four-game losing streak. Laurie Markkanen had 28 points and 10 rebounds for the Jazz, who lost their third straight. Other news from around the NBA, All-Star Game reserves announced. Kawhi Leonard and Paul George of the Los Angeles Clippers were chosen as All-Star Reserves Thursday, while Minnesota and New York also had two players selected. Anthony Edwards and Carl Anthony Towns of the Western Conference-leading Timberwolves will be going to the February 18th game in Indianapolis. Stephen Curry is an All-Star for the 10th time, while the Lakers' Anthony Davis and Devin Booker of Phoenix rounded out the West Reserves. Jalen Brunson was selected for the first time and was joined by teammate Julius Randle from the Knicks, who went 14-2 in January. The East had two other first-time selections in Philadelphia's Tyrese Maxey and Orlando's Paolo Banchero, with Cleveland's Donovan Mitchell and Boston's Jalen Brown joining them. Embiid to miss time with left knee injury. 76ers center Joel Embiid has an injured lateral meniscus in his left knee and will miss games at least through the weekend. Embiid sat out Thursday's win at Utah and also will miss a game Saturday against Brooklyn. Julius Randle will miss at least two weeks with a dislocated right shoulder, knocking the New York forward out at least through the All-Star break. Randall was hurt Saturday after a hard fall on a drive to the basket late in the Knicks' victory over Miami. And Memphis plans to retire Marcus, Mark Gasol's number 33 jersey during its April 6th game against the Philadelphia 76ers. From the NHL, All-Star Weekend has fresh look. Input helps breathe air into league's showcase event. In the aftermath of the 2023 NHL All-Star Skills Competition that was confusing, disjointed, and went off poorly in the arena and on television, Gary Bettman asked Connor McDavid for his thoughts. The long-serving commissioner wanted to know what the reigning MVP, face of the league, Edmonton captain, and the man widely considered the best hockey player in the world thought about the annual event. Several conversations with McDavid and other stars later, 
This All-Star Weekend features the return of some past traditions with the hope of putting some back fun, putting some fun back into it. Back is the popular player draft, which took place Thursday night with Captains McDavid, Austin Matthews, Nathan McKinnon, and brothers Quinn and Jack Hughes picking their teams for the All-Star 3-on-3 tournament Saturday. The skills competition Friday night has a new format with just 12 players participating and a focus on old-school events like Hardest Shot and Fastest Skater. I think the new format's cool, Matthew Barzal said, of the New York Islanders said. It's a pretty good indication that the NHL is trying to get more creative and keep it fun. Oh, and the winner gets a million bucks. McDavid, Matthews, McKinnon, Barzal, Toronto's William Nylander, Edmonton's Leon Dreisaitl, Colorado's Kale Makar, Boston's David Pasternak, and Vancouver's Peterson, Quinn Hughes, and J.T. Miller will each compete in four of the first six events. Those are fastest skater, hardest shot, accuracy shooting, one-timers, passing, and stick handling. NHL Chief Content Officer Steve Mayer said the goal is to be the test of a true hockey player. It's also designed to go quickly and remove some of the weirdness of last year when events were split up and it was hard to follow. We've heard comments that we weren't sure what was going on, Mayer said. I think what we've done is simplified things. The events are short, they're disposable, and they're easy to follow. From around the league, legend defends itself over diversity. Or league defends itself over diversity, excuse me. NHL executive Kim Davis says the league has made progress on the diversity front in response to criticism from a member of the Hockey Diversity Alliance. Former player Akeem Aliou told the Canadian press, He's disappointed in how Davis and the league have not taken advantage of their chances, echoing comments he and current player Nazim Kadri have said about the HDA's fractured relationship with the NHL. I've been in the business of change work in major corporations for over 40 years, said Davis, who was hired in 2017 as Executive Vice President for Social Impact and Growth Initiatives. I don't need to be affirmed by Akeem. What affirms me is progress. The point at hand is young people and growing the game. And Lindholm learns of trade mid-flight. Elias Lindholm was on his way back to Calgary from a trip to Mexico when he learned he had been traded to NHL-leading Vancouver. When he arrived at All-Star Weekend on Thursday, a new Canucks jersey with his name and number 23 on the back was waiting for him. It was a welcome sight for the pending free agent who expected a move for quite some time. I was prepared for anything, Lindholm said. Didn't know when or what team and didn't expect to be traded in the air back from Mexico, but I'm super excited to join this team and pumped to get going. In pro golf, busy off-course Cantlay shines on it. PGA Tour board member one shot off lead at Pebble Beach. Patrick Cantlay has spent about as much time on the phone as the golf course this week as a PGA Tour board member trying to nail down a deal for $3 billion investment. It didn't seem to affect his day at the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am. 
On a surprising day of weather when umbrellas gave way to sunglasses, Cantlay saved par five times and had eight birdies at Spyglass Hill for an eight under 64 that left him one shot behind Thomas Detry of Belgium. Detry worked his own short game magic at the end, chipping in from thick, damp rough for birdie on the 18th at Spyglass to finish with three straight birdies and a 63. Torrey Pines winner Matthew Pavon had the best round at Pebble Beach, closing with four birdies over the last five holes for a 65. Rory McIlroy, no longer on the PGA Tour board, but offering eye-opening comments this week that live golf players should be able to return without punishment, was among the leaders until it all fell apart at the end at Spyglass. He was leading at six under, coming off five birdies and seven holes when he three-putted for bogey. And then on the par 5 7th, he drove into trouble and took a penalty drop by going some 20 yards back on his line and then moving one club length to the right. One problem, that rule was changed to allow that in 2019 and then changed back in 2023. McElroy was supposed to drop on the line between his ball and the hole, so the two-shot penalty turned his bogey into a triple bogey and he shot 71. The 80-man field, the strongest and smallest for Pebble Beach, which is now a signature event offering a $20 million purse, was mostly happy they weren't drenched from a forecast that suggested even more rain on top of the one and a half inches that dropped overnight. The vibe wasn't quite as festive without entertainers from Hollywood and the music industry. The amateur field also was cut to 80, most of them from the NFL if they weren't running Fortune 500 companies. Deltry had 10 birdies by keeping the ball in play off the tee, key on a week of players being able to lift, clean, and place their golf balls in the short grass. The chip-in certainly helped. I felt pretty comfortable. I would put it within three feet, to be honest, Deltry said, and it rolled nicely, just trickled in the hole. It was lovely to watch. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.